0: You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. I don't know if you read the paper this last week. There's a story about how now this August long weekend, they're thinking of changing the name to uh, the Terry Fox Day, and I think that's a brilliant idea. What a what an inspiring story of a young man. You know, when I when when uh, he passed away in 1981, I was nine years old, and he was an older man. And now I look and I think he's a younger man. It's funny how that works and uh... but i remember being inspired by his story thinking he's so brave and and courageous uh... probably i was aware of him uh... i was mindful of him because probably two years before i had learned that my my grandfather had an artificial leg and it wasn't because of cancer it was because of a farming accident but it was one of those things that I always thought, how does my grandpa live without having a leg? And, he'd, you know, he'd, he'd move slower and everything, and now I understood that. And then you see this guy running across the country, that's his goal, and it was just inspiring. And uh, challenges, trials have a way of pulling people together when they're shared, right? Don't you, when you see someone who's going through a hardship, who's trying to beat the odds, it somehow inspires us to pull together and, and cheer that person on and to be a support to one another, Uh, I gave you a sneak peek of this picture before. Of course, we know this with Earl. Earl, uh, uh, of course, loved the Red Wings, but his other uh, love was Terry Fox. That was a role model for him. And I know in our church, for those of us who are here during the time that uh, Earl was alive, his story... Uh, caused us to, to pull together to support him and also because we share our faith in common to, to just submit ourselves to God and to ask God for, for wisdom and for healing and for hope uh, in the situation. And that's the, the difference as far as in trials, people can kind of be brought together. But it's when we share truth in common, when we share God in common, that we often, we actually bond. I think that's a big difference. Trials can bring us together, but it's truth that bonds us. It's truth that unites us. When we were going through the book of Ephesians in chapter 4, it says that we need to learn to, truth speak, we need to, learn to uh, speak love to one another because in that we learn to grow into the head who is Jesus Christ. That we are a body of believers with Christ as our head, and we need to rely on him to mature us and to teach us what he- healthy relationships are all about. Uh, today we're going to be looking at uh, the book of Titus. We're into a five-week series. Um, we were thinking of doing a, a five-week series on the discipleship continuum that we've created to help people talk about their faith and how you can understand your, our growth from infancy into maturity. What, what does that look like? And uh, we decided that instead of taking each line of the continuum, there's five aspects, and instead of doing a topical sermon on each aspect, we just start working through the book of Titus and look at it through the lens of the discipleship continuum. And so uh, I hope that you become more and more familiar with this, not to memorize it, but to help all of us understand that God has us on a maturing journey where we're infants in Christ and we mature in Christ. So today as we read Titus 2, uh, this is the lens that I want to be be, uh, thinking of. So you can turn your Bibles already to Titus 2, and uh, while you're turning there, I just want to share with you a little bit about what that continuum looks like as far as we've discussed so far. And the first thing is that if we're saying, well, what does it mean to be a believer? What does it mean to grow in our faith? It means that we come from a place in infancy when we know who the person of Christ is and what he's done for us, that we need to turn to him for the forgiveness of our sins so that we can be in a right relationship with him to a maturing understanding that because of the grace of his Holy Spirit, we can be transformed into Christ-likeness. And that that happens throughout our life here on earth, but it will only be fulfilled when we get into heaven. And God promises that that will take place because he wills it. That as we submit to him, that we can, pro- we can trust his promise that we will mature into Christ-likeness. That's the hope we have of our salvation. It's not just about going somewhere someday. It's about becoming like Jesus. So, last week, as we were looking at Titus 1, we looked at the first line of the continuum, which talks about how God changes our character. He gives us new life in Him. And as we mature, it, our whole life is it, like a life of integrity. Every aspect of our life begins more and more to reflect who Christ is. So, from little things of, while well, I have troubles with greed, or I have, all of a sudden, my emotions, my thought life, everything starts to be more in line with who Christ is, and it's a better reflection to the world of our Savior. So that was last week, and we were talking about elders, and how elders needed to be people who weren't just, who aren't at the point of striving for that, but who already exemplified these kind of qualities. And today, as we read through Titus 2, the lens we're going to be looking at is the one that goes from community to koinonia. And, uh, I think I'm going to change the word koinia because we always have to explain it. And I think maybe the best word that could go there right now is unity. From experiencing Christian community where we know that we have brothers and sisters in Christ that we share life with to an understanding of the unity of the bond of peace that we have with people. Even when we've just met them for a second, when we know that they're a brother or sister in Christ, we have a unique relationship with them and we can serve together and we can glorify God together. So that is the lens that we're going to be looking at today as we read Titus 2. So please stand with me as I read this passage. So this is Paul writing to Titus. Titus, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to too much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything to try to please them to not talk back to them and to not steal from them but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about god our savior attractive you may be seated So the first thing we read in this passage is Paul saying to Timothy, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. We need to remember that in chapter 1, he was very much concerned about telling Titus what to look for in the elders that he was appointing, but also to be careful. There are people who are treating themselves like elders, but they're false teachers. They're ruining households by telling lies. In Titus 1 verse 9, we read these words, He, this means an elder that you appoint, must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So, sound doctrine is hugely important. We need to know what the truth is. We can't just go by our fancy, what our ears like to hear. We need to know what truth is if we're going to grow into godliness. And we need to know how to stand against things that are false. So, the key thing here, though, is that Paul isn't telling Timothy, you must teach sound doctrine. He's talked about that in chapter 1. What he says here is, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. What are the symbols that show, what are the displays in your character that show that you actually understand and live out of sound doctrine? What are your beliefs? How does doctrine turn into duty? How does belief turn into behavior? How does truth be transforming what does godliness look like because it's not enough to hear truth and to say i agree with it that truth through christ needs to transform us so paul now shifts from the protection of sound doctrine which he talked about in chapter one to the practice of it i'm just going to show you a diagram here in this diagram we're going to look at four circles that represent our lives and the first little circle in the middle this represents the core of our being. This is what we believe. Ideally, this is what we believe that's based on sound doctrine, that's based on truth. This is what God has transformed and said, "This is new. In Christ, this is who you are. I've told you in my word. Another sphere of life would be our thought life, the things that we're thinking throughout the day, the things that uh, keep us active, how we're going to treat people, what we're going to do at work, how I feel. That's the next actual circle. here is our emotions. This isn't scientific, by any way. I just made a diagram. And uh, the last sphere here is our behaviors. Believing that every inner sphere impacts the next one. So, for example, you could watch a TV show that shows about poverty in another world. And you could be motivated to give because you see that. And that's a good thing. But if that's just coming from your emotions to your behavior, I can tell you that that's not going to be a lasting change. That's a, a momentary change. You might go to a seminar, and you might learn something about being in a better employee, and, it sh- and it, they say, these are the kind of practices you should do if you want to be a good employee. So, so from your thought life, you change your behaviors, and that, too, will only last for a while. If you want something to last forever, if you want to be transformed, it has to come out of the core of your being. It has to come from the truth that God has been instilling in your heart through his Holy Spirit. That's what matters. That's what is real transformation everything else is just momentary Uh, so a short way of saying this is our outlook on life determines the outcome what i believe to be true eventually shapes my behavior shapes my thought life shapes my emotions that's not perfectly true in this life there's still sin now but the more i believe something the more my actions will show that i live it out truthfully that i'm not hypocritical so here's some questions First of all, how grounded are you in sound teaching? How regularly are you immersing yourself in the truth of God so that you're sure that day by day you're starting to understand more truth of God and that you're allowing that to transform your thoughts and your actions? In uh, Titus 1 verse 16, this is what Paul says about the people who are false teachers. He says, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. Isn't that a terrifying thing? I'd hate to be a person who claims to know God, who believes I do, but my actions, if I was to evaluate my life, no, that's not reflective of a heart of God. So we need to be mindful of are my actions actually do they reflect my behaviors? And I'll tell you they do. So if you don't like your behaviours, you won't like what you believe, what you truly believe. Um, uh, So we need to surrender that to God and say, God, I might understand this truth, I might have heard it, but I it hasn't changed at the core of who I am yet. So how do your beliefs shape your behaviors and your lifestyle? That's another question to consider. So now we're going to move on to to training goals. So in chapter 1, Paul was telling Titus, look for men who already exemplify characteristics of godliness. In chapter 2, he's saying now we need to be an example to people to train them in godliness because most people don't know what godliness looks like. So now we need to talk with the older men the older women the younger women the younger men we need to teach them about what godliness looks like we need to train them so the first one is to teach the older men see in brackets there it says 50 plus i hope you're not offended by that the word in greek does not have an age limit but to the best of my understanding as usually paul was 60 when he wrote this most of the time it refers to a 50 to six year old I saw one place where someone said it was 40. I did not like that. I rejected it. I said, let's put 50 on there. That sounds right to me. So older men, this is what you need to be. You need to be temperate. This root word comes from the idea of being sober, not being drunk. But in this context, it's more of a figurative word to mean level-headed. You need to be people that... uh, are level-headed that don't kind of fluctuate all over the place. People know when they see you. They know what to expect. You need to be worthy of respect in your conduct and your character. You should be reflecting Christ to other people. That's what godliness looks like. You need to be self-controlled. In a world that's full of lust, you need to be self-controlled. This is what godliness looks like. You need to be sensible and restrained. And then he talks about three virtues of Christian living. These are standard throughout the New Testament. The first one is sound and faith. Quite often when we hear the word faith, it actually is another word for sound doctrine. But in this context, sound and faith means you need to be in a personal relationship with God. You need to have experienced the truth relationally. You need to have that lived out in your life. You need to know who God is in a, in a personal way. And, and that's that word sound in is what makes faith mean that in this context you need to be sound it needs to be uh, all of your life needs to be exemplified in faith it needs to be personal in the same way you need to be sound in love it's not just something theoretical understand that you are in love that god is in love with you that he has a covenant relationship with you which transforms everything about you which transforms your understanding of love and how you are to love the world and finally sound in endurance a close tie to this would be hope and this these would be the three words you'd be most familiar with from 1 corinthians 13 verse 3 now these three remain faith hope and love and the greatest of these is love uh, but in this circumstance paul instead of using the word uh, hope he uses the word endurance and he puts it last and i'm not sure i'm not in the mind of paul but i wouldn't be surprised if he puts endurance at the bottom of the list right now to emphasize for old men for older men the value of enduring because isn't it true that as we get older on in life that sometimes especially at the end of the race sometimes you can be motivated you want to finish the line but sometimes you're just tired and paul is saying titus remind these older men that they want to finish well that they're leaving a legacy that they are leaving examples that they are influencing the generations that are to come they need to finish well The writer of Hebrews would say, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So these three words are, are evidence in there too. Endurance, Jesus as being the source of love, and also the initiator and perfecter of our faith. Older men, please endure. Please don't fall. Please keep your eyes on Christ so that when you do temporary fall, he picks you up for a righteous man. God will always pick back up determine in your heart to keep christ core and he will lift you up in your humility endure that's hugely important for this generation to see paul then switches the emphasis to older women and you like to see that it's 60 plus and there's actually a pretty good biblical basis for that number i also like the extra 10 year bonus i thought people would be happy with that but for the most part in scripture when it says older women it is talking about those who are 60 or more Um, and uh, so here are a few things that he says Paul teach women to be reverent in the way that they live reverent meaning to, to view things as being sacred this life is a gift from God and everything God has created is sacred live in a way that you are in awe of what God has allowed you to participate in the phrase in the way they live indicates again that outward expression of an inward faith It indicates that what I believe has really come to hold to change my thought life, to change my emotions, to change my behaviors. I really believe the God who has revealed himself in Scripture. I really believe he's true. And I really believe that I'm saved because of the good work of Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. Older women, it's hugely important that you live lives that reflect reverence in the way that you live. Then he goes on to say, don't be slanderers the root of this word is that where we get the word devil from and as we know uh the scripture tells us that satan is the father of lies people who slander cannot be servants of god at the same time so older women guard against slandering don't let your mouth say words that are not appropriate of a believer in christ don't be addicted to too much wine teach what is good in this uh, context, teach again is not an academic exercise it's a way of living. it's saying model goodness to others in the way you treat them. This is very much a mentoring phrase. Women, there are other women who need to know what godliness it looks like, who Jesus Christ is, and in the way you live among them, they will get to know God. And we know that that's the thrust of what Paul's saying because the next thing he says is, if these things are in place, then You can train younger women. And you should see that as a goal and as an honor that God has grown you to a place where he says, I want you to invest in the younger generation. I want you to teach the younger women what it means to be my children. That's a huge privilege. Please make use of that opportunity. With that in mind, I just want to bring you to two questions before we go further in the passage. And the first one is, For those of us who are in that category, if you're an older man, an older woman, who are you intentionally an example to follow? And I put three names down here because I'll tell you, you are an example to someone. You might not be doing it intentionally, but you are an example to someone else to follow, to say, this is the way that person lives, this is the way my dad lives, this is the way I believe I need to be to be a follower of Christ. So what I'm asking you to do is really think about who are these at least three people in your life who look to you for modeling for examples and now be intentional about it be intentional about thinking i i want to honor god by the way i live and i want to be an example to the next generation and for those of you who are in the younger category i want to ask you this whose example are you following Maybe you don't have three people that you say, those are my role models, but I can guarantee you you're looking at someone or something to help shape your life. When you're younger, choose good, godly examples so that you make a good foundation for the rest of your life. So now we move into the passage, and Titus is told to let the older women train the younger. Paul doesn't tell Titus, Titus, go train the younger women. He says, Train the older women and now let them train the younger women to do a number of things. And the first thing he mentions is to love their husband and their children. In this passage, younger women is referring to younger wives. It's quite clear even by this first uh, phrase. Love their husbands and their children. I found this picture and it just says, uh, the love of a family is one of life's greatest blessings. And that's true. Uh, I didn't choose the picture that said the love of of family is the greatest blessing because that's not true the greatest blessing is being in a relationship with god the next greatest blessing is being a part of the body of christ and you're really really blessed if your family shares christ in common but we need to always remember that family does not trump the body of christ god says the most important thing is that he's our father and that we have relationship with one another that's a little bit of a rabbit trail But I think it's important because we don't want to make an idol of family. We want to honor God with our families and treat them in the way that they should. So here, younger women are said, love your husbands and your children. Be self-controlled and pure. Be busy at home. By this, there could be a lot of discussion on a few of these things of what does Paul actually mean, and you'd have to study a little bit more to figure it out. But I do think the thrust of what he's saying is, it doesn't mean, women, that you need to be in the home but all the time, that that's all you are, but that your priority is your home, that you're always thinking about your family and what you're doing. That You're saying, how am I honoring God by caring for my family? I think that is a thrust there. Be kind, be subject to their own husbands. This is a phrase, too, that some of you might say, I need to study that a little bit more, and I would encourage you to. Uh, what I did add is in the NIV, the word own is not there, but it's there in Greek. And I think it's actually a very important word, because in chapter 1, we were told that elders need to be the husbands of but one wife, with the understanding that a lot of the Greek men had three women in their life. They had their wife, they had a slave girl that they might sleep with, and they had a temple prostitute. And now these men, as they came to know Christ, they were told, nope, that's no longer good, you need to be a one-woman man. You made a covenant to your wife, you honour that relationship. And I'm not sure, but I think one of the reasons Titus... Uh, Paul says this now is to say wise remember that your husbands are making a change too they're committing to you they're saying no to every other relationship and they're going to love you as Christ loves the church so you do your part and you you subject yourself to them that that doesn't mean you're inferior it means that you you put yourself in a place in a loving submission to their uh, place of leadership in in the home and then this is what the phrase is then it says after that why would these things be important So that no one will malign the word of God. Not so that you will have a happy and fulfilling life. That's true. But what's the main reason that we want to see these things exemplified in the life of young women? So that no one will malign the word of God. That's hugely important. We need to remember that life is always about honoring God and helping others come to know him. To point them to Christ. So now Titus is told to look at the young men. And now he's, he's said, you, Titus, need to be an example to these young men. Titus, you're an older guy. You need to be an example to these young men. And the young men have what I think is a pretty simple short list because that's probably all that we could handle. I'm saying we, I'm being generous there. I'm on the upper end. But it says just to be self-controlled. Young men, you need to be self-controlled. Because God knows that in our young years and throughout life self-control is a hard thing i don't know if you've noticed this so far but in the three groups before us self-control was in each of those lists in one way or another self-control is important for everybody to exemplify but sometimes for young men when you're trying to make a name for yourself when you're trying to discover who you are when you're just trying to enjoy life self-control can be very very hard to do very daunting and uh and Paul knows that men often learn better by watching than just by teaching, right? It says, this picture here says, manhood is caught, not taught. You want to learn to be a man, well, you, it's good to be spending time with other men, right? To be, hopefully, in our context, with men who love the Lord, to see what that looks like. And one of the things that you should be seeing is self-control. And so, if you think, take this balloon as being self-control, and right now, there's nothing in it. Right, I have no, in this situation, there's no self-control. And so... Oh, object lessons are hard to do well. So now this needs to be filled with something. Maybe I'm motivated to lose some weight for a little while, or maybe I've found a girlfriend and i want to be a really good guy so she's attracted to me and i you're self-controlled because you have some external motivation right and so if that's there it, it can look really good but as soon as that motivation is gone whoa I, i'll just go wherever i need to go right like it's not really that helpful it's not really self-control in the long run it's not again one of those things that's the core of your being change self-control it's just a temporary self-control and so Okay, so what we need to do is we need to tie this thing off. We need to say, you know what, at the core of my being, because of what Christ has taught me about himself, because the Bible teaches me, I think this is one of the core truths, because I'm supposed to die to myself and live in Christ, if I understand that truth, that life is not about me, it's about him, that I'm supposed to be a good steward, well then all of a sudden, self-control becomes something that becomes core of who I am. And it can still be something that's kind of fun to play with but it's a lot more observable for other people to watch and understand what's happening in Doug's life with that self-control how does it end up working it points people towards God it doesn't just fly around oh I guess that self-control was uh, you know a fad diet or whatever does that make sense there's things that motivate motivate us externally but then there's things that need to at the core of our being change us and young men you need self-control If you don't have self-control, life is going to take you places you don't want to go. And at the end of life, you're going to look back and say, Lord, forgive me for the way I've wasted my life. I pursued glory. I pursued money. I pursued pleasure rather than loving relationships with God and the people who I care about. Young men have self-control. And then Titus is just told in general, still thinking with young men in mind, but titus be a good example by doing what is good set for them in everything uh, an example by doing what is good and how does he do that it says in your teaching show that you have integrity that what you teach you actually believe that what you teach you actually have concern about that this happens in someone else's life that you're not just teaching because it's your obligation you're teaching because you care about the people that you're speaking truth to and you care about the people that you're demonstrating your life or you're living your life with. You want them to know Jesus and to follow them. Be serious. This doesn't mean you can't have fun, it means do it with dignity that is worthy of the gospel. When you look at life, think about what God would want. Think seriously about those things. Again, that doesn't talk about humor at all. It's just about how are you living life? Are you are you making wise decisions? Are you teaching wisely? And then finally, have soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. And, and this isn't so much talking again about the content of the talk, about it being sound doctrine, that's already a given. This is talking about being mindful of how you share. Are you meeting people where they're at? Are you teaching them in a way that they're understanding? Are, are you being sound? Are you being wholesome in your conversation? And then there's another so that, and these are key phrases to keep in mind. Why would we want to do these things? So that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Why is it important to teach this way, to have self-control? Because there will be people who oppose you, and when they do, they should be ashamed because they know that their words have no weight. That there's nothing that they can prove. Everything about your life is pointing towards righteousness and godliness. That there should be nothing bad to say about us. I think this is key. Paul says to Timothy, when you're teaching, you're reflecting the words of Christ. And because I'm doing that as well, we're we're a team in this. Even though we might not be doing this side by side, when we share the word of God with others, there's an us in that. This is about the family of God. When you talk to others about Christ, when you live in your workplace, you are representing the body of Christ there. You are representing us there. So when you're at work and someone sees your life, they say, oh, that's what a believer looks like. That's what people from White Ridge Church look like. So I just want to ask uh, two questions here. Acknowledging that a lot of people don't necessarily have the blessing of people in their life who are christians maybe your dad's not a believer maybe your siblings aren't maybe there aren't those kind of connections in your life that happen biologically that's again is a reason why god has given us a church because we have loving family relationships within our church family and we need to think about this how are we helping one another model christlikeness and teaching and training in righteousness and godliness so the question is what are some ways that you can help foster cross-generational connections within our church family When you think about yourself, not a program, just you and opening up your home, opening up your life to people, what does that look like? And then thinking out as a bigger picture, how could we grow in this value as a church over the coming year? We live in a society where these kind of connections don't just happen naturally because we're spending so much time together. We need to be intentional in modeling Christ-likeness to each other and making time for each other there's one last section in this passage um, and and Titus Paul here is talking specifically to slaves and I I think he goes this way because he knows that within the congregation within the church he's talking with a number of his church family are slaves it was just a regular part of life back then whether they had a good position or a hard position they were in a a subservient position to others and he said this is what you need to know you need to be subject to your masters in everything you need to try to please your masters even when they're not looking. Live in a way that pleases them. Don't talk back to your masters. Don't have a mouth against them. You, you respect them, again, even when they're not there. Don't steal from them. And why? So that you can show that you're fully trusted. Uh, some people make a connection to, to this, to being an employee, and I think there's, you can talk about that a little bit. But man i'll tell you it's a lot different being a slave i'm sure than being an employee i don't think those are really fair to compare but the truth here is that all these things are important to exemplify because of this because trust is hugely important for people to to understand or to trust what you're saying to when you when they see your life that, that they might eventually believe your words paul says equip live this way slaves so that in every way you will make the teaching about god our savior attractive that's why you live that way not again not so that you get a bonus at work not so you get employee of the month you live this way so that you make the teaching about god our savior attractive maybe at some time your master is going to ask you how can you be this way none of my other slaves are like that you live with dignity and with with integrity how can that be and you can help point people towards christ so as we move to communion i just want to point out the three things that came out in this passage as far as the purpose of training and these are the so that statements young women you live the way the bible tells you to uh, embody truth so that others will not malign the word of god young men older men you your teaching you, you teach well you live well so that those who oppose you may not be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us slaves when you're in a role where someone else is over authority and you don't have control of what you do during the day live in such a manner that in every way you make the teaching about god our savior attractive living godly lives has huge blessings for us has huge blessings for our family But ultimately God says, I want you to live godly lives so that those who don't yet know me might. That they might come to consider me.